unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Rasputin, Lucifer, evil genius, somber porcupine, the world's most hated diplomat. These are just some of the choice names that people have given for the former diplomat and politician V.K. Krishnamenon. Menon is, in many ways, one of the most consequential figures in post-independence India, and he's the subject of a new book by the politician and author J. Ram Ramesh titled A Checkered Brilliance, The Many Lives of V.K. Krishnamenon. The book was recently named the co-winner of the 2020 Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay New India Foundation Book Prize. J. Ram Ramesh is a Rajya Sabha MP former union minister and author of several well-known books, including Intertwined Lives, P.N. Huxer, and Indira Gandhi. I am pleased to welcome him to the podcast for the very first time. Jairam, welcome to the show and congratulations on the recent prize. Thank you. Good morning, Milan. Good evening from here. Good morning to you. Uh, great to speak with you. I, I want to jump right in by asking you to reflect a bit on the process of doing this book. You know, anyone who reads this quite lengthy book is struck right off the bat by the copious amount of archival material you unearth to piece together the story of, you know, what is a, a pretty complicated life, I think it's fair to say. You mentioned you took advantage of several new archives which had opened up and given access. Tell us a bit more about how you went about researching this book. Well, Milan, uh, this is my third biography. And the philosophy that I have followed in all the three biographies is to depend exclusively on archival material. Uh, there is very little oral history. Uh, there's very little interviewing. Uh, there's very little, you know, judgments uh, of, of others or even of the author. So it is really archival narratives, uh, you know, uh, and this this is archives, contemporary written material, uh, which is available in archives in India and abroad as well. Now, specifically on the Krishnamenon uh, biography, uh, you know, after almost 40 years, uh, his archives have been opened up at the Nehru Memorial uh, Museum and Library. Uh, and they really, you know, they are, they are a treasure trove. That's to make an understatement because they're literally, literally uh, almost a thousand files uh, and um, and they've finally been opened up. Uh, so I I didn't have any special access to it. Uh, it was access you know anybody uh, could have into. Plus um, uh, uh, there was a lot of material available uh, on Krishnamanan in archives in the U.S. and U.K., uh, which have become now you know in the come into the public domain. They've been digitized, uh, and they're now easily accessible. Uh, books have been written on Krishnamanan in the past. Uh, but they've either been hagiographies or they've been, uh, uh, you know, um, hatchet jobs. Because, you know, he he's a man who evokes extreme views. You're either a great admirer of his or you're, uh, you know, a great critic of his. Uh, and I wanted to avoid that, as I have in my previous biographies as well. So I, frankly, my philosophy on biography writing, Milan, is depend on archives. Uh, depend on your own narrative. Uh, don't get into psychohistory. Uh, don't get into a, too much of uh, judgments. Uh, but present the facts as they reveal themselves uh, in the contemporary written evidence, 
uh, and let the let the subject of the biography speak for himself or herself and that's the poli- that's the uh, that's the uh, approach i've adopted uh, and the main um, the main archives of course are the nehru memorial archives for krishna menon uh, then the british national archives certainly uh, and uh, a number of our, the eisenhower archives have been very helpful uh, the john foster dulles archives uh, and uh, the mountbatten archives in in the uk uh, and a lot of other archives of uh, individuals who had been associated uh, with krishna menon uh, in the 40s and the 50s so it's uh, you know it's a lot of uh, archival scavenging that's that's there in in the book so I, I want to ask you about this issue of judgment, right? I mean, you note at the outset in, of the book that it's not meant to be a judgmental undertaking. It is, in your words, a straightforward narrative biography. As you alluded to, however, anyone who ever came in contact with Menon ended up leaving with an extremely strong opinion, sometimes positive, more often than not negative. Was it a struggle as you were doing this to to keep your own views in check while you were writing the book? Well, you know, it's always difficult, Milan. Um, you won't start a book uh, unless you have some modicum of admiration uh, for the subject. Uh, you know, and if you don't feel that the subject is worth writing about, you won't start on a biography. Uh, now, I'm not a Menonphobe, uh, but I'm not a Menonphile either, you know. So I've presented... Uh, all the evidence uh, to show that Menon made very major contributions. For example, one of the issues that is very contemporary in India today uh, is uh, self-reliance and the defense manufacturing. He was uh, he was the greatest champion of that, and he was the only Indian politician in the fifties arguing for a negotiated settlement with China uh, on the border issue, an issue that you know was. Uh, is uppermost in people's minds today. Uh, so, you know, I present the evidence on that. On the other hand, he was cantankerous. Uh, you know, he um, he was, I mean, you called him a diplomat, but uh, he was actually the most undiplomatic diplomat <laughs> you could think of. He, got, he, he made friends uh, easily, but he made enemies even more easily. Uh, and uh, he gave India a bad name uh, in international forums. Uh, particularly towards the later part of the 1950s. Um, And uh, the Americans found him pesky, the Britishers found him pesky, the Europeans found him pesky. Uh, So, you know, yeah, I mean, I didn't didn't suppress anything, uh, Milan. Uh, There's a, you know, there was only one one issue that bothered me, and that was a letter that... uh, uh, Nehru writes to Krishna Menon in 1939, saying that, you know, not only uh, am I in a state of physical collapse, but I'm in a state of great mental tension. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know how I'm going to continue life. Uh, and, you know, it is, it's a very anguished letter that Nehru writes to Krishna Menon. Uh, and... Um, uh, I knew, I mean, from the letter, the the context was Indira Gandhi's news uh, to the, her father that she wanted to marry Feroz Gandhi. Uh, and that was, you know, had had um, really disturbed Nehru. Uh, and he shared that anguish with, with Menon. And that's the only time when I asked 
should I include this or should I not include it? But I included it, including my, uh, my um, you know, sort of narrative, which says why Nehru uh, was disturbed. And the only person he could share his anguish uh, was with Krishnamenon. So, but I didn't hold back anything. There were suicide notes that he wrote, uh, you know, on numerous occasions, uh, which I which I have reproduced in the book. Uh, conversations with Chavan Lai, uh, which in today's context, you know, may sound a bit uh, sensitive, so to speak, because here was Krishnamenon arguing for a negotiated settlement. Uh, so, but I included all that, Milan. You, you know, the the, the the author has to have a sense of detachment. I mean, you're attached to the subject, but you can't be detached from the evidence, you know, right. whether it's positive or whether it's negative. And I think intellectual honesty and integrity demands that you present whatever you have found. Uh, and, you know, and provide the narrative you know whether it's positive or negative because you see i i am not out to i'm not out to deify him i'm not out to demonize him either i'm just saying here is a consequential personality uh, in indian political life uh, and this is his life story warts and all and i think that's uh, you know that's the general approach to biography that i've taken whether it is in the case of mr huxer uh, or even in the case of Indira Gandhi, uh, you know, although my biography of Indira Gandhi was on her environmental legacy, uh, but still, you know, I located that environmental legacy uh, in her larger political scheme of things. And as you know, Indira Gandhi is very controversial. Uh, you know, she um, she has uh, her legion of admirers, uh, and uh, but she's also got an army of critics. The, most importantly for the emergency that she imposed from 75 to 77. And I couldn't not write about the emergency, you know, in that book uh, and, you know, and how she dealt with environmental issues during the emergency. You know, you've talked a little bit about Menon's personality. Uh, there are several telling anecdotes in the book. One comes from Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, Nehru's sister, who would succeed Menon as High Commissioner to London. She once said that he was a, quote, brilliant and versatile man, but he had overpowering ambition, which he sometimes tried to hide under a cloak of pseudo-humility. He was like a Victorian woman, a person of moods and periods of depression, <laughs> Uh, the daughter of the last viceroy of India, Lord Mountbatten, records that Menon was, quote, in a manner far more English than any Englishman, end quote. Uh, what, what did she mean by that? How was he more English than any Englishman? Well, you know, uh, both, uh, both Nehru and Menon, Milan, uh, were, were proud Indians, but they were good Britishers as well. <laughs> uh, you know, Nehru told Mountbatten that, he's, uh, that he, Nehru, is the last Britisher to rule India. I mean, he said it in a he said it obviously in a light way. Uh, but you know, both of them were very British. Uh, they were educated in England. Uh, they had British friends. Uh, you know, they were part of the British left circle, the Labour Party circle. Um, so uh, Menon, of course, lived in the U UK from 1924 till 1952 for 28 years. Uh, although Nehru was there in England only for seven years. Uh, so, you know, um, in 28 years when you live in England, and, you know, he was the, he's, 
he was student in at LSE for 10 years. The longest the record that is unlikely to be, you know, equal uh, right. remotely. 10 years he was a student uh, at, at LSE. So, um, you know, he was... Uh, he was British in that sense. He was he was he was comfortable with Pax Britannica. He was not comfortable with Pax Americana. You know, right. he would have lived with Pax Britannica, uh, but he was certainly very uncomfortable. He had all the suspicions of America, which you know uh, the British intelligentsia coming from the left had. But coming to uh, what Vidyalakshmi Pandit uh, had said, Milan, you see, in the 1950s, Menon was known as Formula Menon. Uh, you know, you had a crisis, you went to, you didn't like Menon, but you went to him for a formula. In 1952, uh, it was Menon's formula that led to the armistice in Korea uh, in mid of 1953. Uh, and his role in Korea is, is, is deeply, deeply uh, significant. Uh, whether it was Cyprus, whether it was Algeria, whether it was Suez, the Suez crisis of 1956, uh, Menon had a formula. And usually Menon's formula clicked. Uh, the Americans didn't like it. The Russians didn't like him either, although he was seen to be a Russian agent. Uh, and in 1955, Milan, uh, which was perhaps his most glorious year, he almost brought about a rapprochement between uh, the U.S. and China. What Kissinger uh, accomplished in 1971, uh, Menon almost pulled off in 1955. He had six meetings with uh, Dulles. He had two meetings with Eisenhower, uh, you know, on the issue of uh, imprisoned American um, airmen. And four airmen were actually released because of Menon's intervention. Uh, and in '55, unfortunately, the domestic politics of America uh, you know, Eisenhower was not bold enough to do a Nixon, what Nixon did in 1971. Uh, so Menon, you know, Menon had, uh, if he could be, if, if he wanted to be constructive, he could be very, very constructive. You know, Lester Pearson wrote in his diary, the former prime minister of Canada, who was dealing with Menon on the Korean issue, saying that if he wants to be constructive and positive, there is no force like Menon. But you know those you have to you had to wait for those moments right. when he was constructive and positive. He was a very prickly man, and I think the reason why he was prickly, Milan, uh, you know, apart from his personality and so on, also the fact. Remember, uh, this was an Anglo-Saxon world. You know, we are right. talking of the early fifties. The white man was still ruling the world, and the white man was telling the world what is good for them. Uh, and Krishna Menon, you know, thought that he could speak English better than all the guys. Uh, he knew more about, you know, the West than many people in the West. So he resented, you know, being talked down to or talked at. And he wanted a position of equality. But, you know, in the 50s, uh, it was a different ballgame, as you know. You know, the the British and the American, uh, you know, rule was still the hegemony. The intellectual hegemony, if not the colonial legacy, but certainly the intellectual hegemony was very much there. So, you know, Menon spoke and spoke freely at the UN. Uh, and uh, in the early 50s and till the mid 50s, I think, 
uh, he was a voice that was listened to. Uh, the West didn't like him because there were two issues, Milan. Uh, one was decolonization in Africa uh, and the apartheid rule in South Africa, on which he was uh, an early bird, and disarmament. He was one of the earliest voices on disarmament, uh, which ultimately you know, led to the 1963 partial test ban treaty uh, between the US uh, and the USSR. So I think, you know, the environment in the 50s uh, was such that anybody who stood up and got counted uh, from the so-called third world would become a target of attack. You know, One of the central relationships throughout your book is the friendship, sometimes strained, between Menon and Nehru. Uh, Nehru's biographer had this to say about Nehru's uh, 1935 trip to London. He said, quote, the most lasting impression on Nehru was made not by any Englishman, but by Krishna Menon, who he then met for the first time, Later in the book, you write that during the 17 years or so that Nehru was prime minister, the only person with whom he shared uninhibited intellectual camaraderie was Krishna Menon. Now, on the surface of it, these men had some similarities, but also a great many differences. What was ultimately, do you think, the source of their kind of mutual attraction? Well, I think, you know, Menon was uh, Nehru's soulmate. Uh, and he was a sounding board. Uh, and, you know, um, there, are many, there are many facets to this. Uh, Nehr- Menon was one of the founders of Pelican Books. You know, uh, he was a publisher. He was a well-known publisher. He published a lot of books. He was the founder of the Pelican Books as part of the Penguin, you know, family. Uh, he, uh, he helped in publishing Nehru's books uh, uh, in England, uh, and through which Nehru became an internationally known figure. Um, he was also very close to uh, the British Labour Party, uh, Stafford Cripps, Clement Attlee, uh, you know, Harold Lasky. Uh, these were all people who were very influential in the Labour Party. And uh, they were people who uh, Nehru, uh, of course, was known to them, but Menon uh, became a sort of a facilitator uh, and, and a conduit uh, between Nehru uh, and and the left intelligentsia uh, in England, uh, but I think Nehru saw Menon as an international figure. He saw him as a very well-read figure, as a very articulate figure. Most Indian politicians Nehru saw were provincial. You know, uh, they were worried about their constituency, worried about their caste, uh, or they were you know worried about the communal issue, which was very important at that point of time. Uh, and Nehru uh, saw. Menon as a kindred spirit. They were democratic socialists. Both were democratic socialists, deep believers in in democracy, but uh, unrepentant socialists till the very end. Uh, And uh, there were many things on which um, their views converged. For example, the idea of having a constituent assembly, uh, which Gandhi opposed till 1939. And Gandhi comes around only in 1939. Uh, and Nehru and uh, and Menon were the early amongst the earliest people uh, to advocate the idea of a constituent assembly. We go way back in 1933-1934, and as you know, the constituent assembly becomes a reality in 1946, and it leads to the constitution of India. So it's a uh, you know it's a uh, it, it's a it's a 
phenomenal relationship, you know, because Nehru protects um, Krishna Menon. Uh, he is not blind to Krishna Menon's faults and foibles and weaknesses, but he thinks that he thinks that the advantage of having uh, Krishna Menon outweighs, uh, you know, the, the the disadvantages and which can be overcome because of Nehru's personality. So I think, frankly, uh, it's the international uh, perspective that. Krishnamanan brought, uh, you know, to to India's freedom struggle, and the fact that he was one of the key negotiators uh, between India and the British Labour Party. See, most Indians believe that the Indian freedom movement was uh, uh, was uh, fought in India. Of course, that's true, but there is another strand to the Indian freedom movement that there was a strand of negotiation between the Indian National Congress. Uh, and the British Labour Party. Uh, and Menon was a central figure in that process of negotiation. You know, in contrast to Menon's close partnership with Nehru, you also write that Menon could never quite get his head around Gandhi. You know, at, at one point he tells Nehru he, he can't understand Gandhi or the positions that he took. Why did Gandhi remain such an enigma in some sense to Menon? Well, Gandhi remained an enigma to many people. <laughs> to many Menon, people. <laughs> you know, Menon only articulated uh, his, uh, his sense of puzzlement uh, at how uh, Gandhi was able to pull it off. Uh, you know, Gandhi was not a charismatic speaker. Uh, Gandhi was not a charismatic, uh, uh, you know, looker. Uh, and uh, Menon's ideas, on uh, Menon felt that Gandhi was uh, deeply anti-science, uh, deeply anti-modernity, uh, deeply wedded to, uh, you know, he brought Hindu themes and Hindu motives uh, into political, uh, into the political discourse in India. Uh, he defended uh, the caste system. Uh, he 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 was absolutely against untouchability, but you know he was he was uh, he defended the caste system, not the caste system. He defended the Varnashrama Dharma. Which is, you know, the the different gradations. Uh, so uh, it was. Uh, he saw Gandhi. He saw Nehru representing progressive, secular, um, and by secular he meant uh, absolute um, separation of religion. That the state had no business uh, in in propagating religion. Of, of course, India is a religious society. Uh, however. Uh, the, the, his, his notion and Nehru's notion of secular India was that the state is is absolutely uh, far away from 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 religion. So uh, and Gandhi was comfortable, you know, with uh, you know with 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 using Hindu themes, Hindu motives. Um, so I think this was a perpetual sense of puzzlement. Uh, and, but Nehru understood Gandhi beautifully, as you know, he, he wrote to Menon, as you would some of the letters that, you know, you will never understand Gandhi. You have to go beyond what Gandhi is saying or go beyond what Gandhi is writing. Uh, and I think, uh, I mean, for example, uh, I think Menon could never understand how the salt Satyagraha, you know, could be such a, uh, such a game changer. Uh, and a transformative moment in Indian political history. You know, many people were befuddled by the fact that Gandhi had used salt as a symbol. But that was Gandhi, you know. Uh, so, you know, 
I, I think Menon, uh, much later, much later, 30 years later, uh, you know, after when he was in retirement, uh, began, I think, to appreciate Gandhi much more. But as long as he was out of India, uh, Gandhi to him was a perpetual uh, source of agony. Uh, and, you know, uh, because Gandhi, uh, what Gandhi said could be interpreted in multiple ways. Right. So that's, I think, the reason why he could never relate to Gandhi. So, you know, Menon left India in 1924. I think he came back once in 1932. He made a second visit uh, in 1946. And this was really a crucial visit because he played a very important uh, role behind the scenes uh, just prior to independence. It was in July 1947 that he was appointed India's first high commissioner to London when Edwina Mountbatten, uh, the wife, of course, of the viceroy, wrote in her farewell letter to him, uh, she she talked about his friendship, his wise counsel, his judgment, his ability to smooth things over as the British were exiting India. Tell us a little bit about the kind of behind-the-scenes role that Menon played in the final months of the Raj. Well, uh, you know, in 46, 47... Um... Uh, it's a tale of two Menons, uh, Milan. Uh, Sardar Patel's chief advisor was VP Menon. Right. And Jawaharlal Nehru's key advisor was VK Krishna Menon. So, uh, in many ways, if you want to write the story of 1946 and 47, it should be the, called A Tale of Two Menons. Uh, Maybe that's your next book, Jairam. <laughs> <laughs> and the two menons hated each other, you know. <laughs> and you know they were as different as uh, you know. They're completely different. Uh, and but uh, VP Menon uh, ultimately was the man who came up with the formula uh, for the partition uh, and the transfer of power uh, from the British to the two dominions uh, of India and Pakistan. Uh, but Right through this period of 46 and 47, but particularly after Mountbatten comes. Mountbatten comes in March of 1947. Uh, uh, less so during Wavell's time, but more when Mountbatten comes, because uh, uh, Menon, Krishna Menon has known Edwina from 1934 onwards. And he's met Mountbatten in 1942. Uh, he knows Mountbatten. Uh, so Mountbatten, the Mountbattens, uh, you know, uh, use him uh, not only as we, a Christian Menon, but also as somebody uh, who enjoys Nehru's confidence and trust. Uh, and he's at Nehru's side throughout from March of 1947 uh, till the 3rd of June, when partition is actually formally announced by the British. Uh, and a lot of things that... Um, uh, you know, uh, th this is now part of the archival record. It's part of the transfer of power documents as well. Uh, Vavil hated Krishna Menon, but Mountbatten depended on him. And I think the dependence, uh, um, Milan, uh, was uh, to use him as a sounding board, uh, you know, to use him as some sort of a, uh, you know, as a, as a touchstone of, how Nehru would think and what Nehru would do. Uh, because in these matters, I think uh, Krishnamanan and, and, and Nehru thought alike. But it really, the two Menons played play a very, very, very crucial role. Uh, 
and uh, you know uh, on kashmir particularly uh, krishna menon saw kashmir uh, you know he he saw kashmir as part of a uh, he saw partition as part of some british strategic uh, you know vision uh, for retaining a hold in this part of asia uh, and he kept telling nehru that kashmir is not just uh, you know an issue of integration of one part uh, into india uh, but it's part of a larger british and uh, anglo-saxon uh, american game plan with strategic objectives in order to gain a foothold to deal with russia uh, and to deal with uh, the middle east uh, so could i ask you about just one on one aspect of this because you know many historians have portrayed the debate over partition as a kind of duel between Nehru and Jinnah, with, of course, Mountbatten as a third critical actor. But Congress leader Molana Azad, in his memoir, and you document this, accuses Menon of being the one responsible for convincing Nehru to accept partition. So in your judgment, based on everything you've seen, how much of the partition decision can be fairly attributed to Menon's role? No, I think, uh, to be fair, Milan, uh, the evidence shows that from September of 1946, both Patel and Nehru uh, were beginning to get reconciled to the idea of partition. See, their experience of running the interim government uh, and the problems that they had with Liaquat Ali Khan uh, and then subsequently the walking out of the Muslim League. I think from September 46 onwards, um, things become... Actually, uh, even from April 1946, you know, the Calcutta killings, uh, and then subsequently, you know, the way uh, the, the, the interim government functioned or made not to function, uh, by end of 1946... I'm beginning from what I have read of Patel and Nehru. Both Patel and Nehru uh, are, are beginning to think that this is, you know, this is not in the realm of impossibility. So I would not attribute the, uh, you know, decision like Azad said that, you know, it is because of. Uh, in fact, Azad blames two people. He blames Krishna Menon and he blames Edwina. And I think he is, uh, you know, is a bit unfair. <laughs> you know, he was a bitter man when he wrote those 30 pages, uh, he was a bit unfair. I think both Nehru and uh, Patel uh, had had basically reconciled themselves uh, that, you know, partition was going to be inevitable, that Punjab had to be partitioned, Bengal had to be partitioned uh, in order for uh, to save uh, India. Remember, Milan, one factor that is often historians don't talk about is that the British were quite comfortable in transferring power to three entities, uh, the dominion of India, the dominion of Pakistan, and there was a third entity, which is a confederation of the princely states. And this was an idea that was being canvassed by the Chamber of Princes uh, in India, and it had its supporters in England. Uh, you know, Winston Churchill, although Winston Churchill was not in the government, but, you know, he was an important voice in the in, uh, British political establishment. So, actually, one of Menon's great contributions in England was to knock this idea of a confederacy out of the window, uh, saying that if there's going to be transfer of power, it has to be transfer of power only to two dominions, India 
and Pakistan. Not the con- confederation of princes, uh, an idea that, you know, uh, um, many people in India, particularly the Chamber of Princes, uh, and uh, in- incidentally, it's not just the Mus- not just the Nawab of Bhopal, uh, but there was the Maharaja of Jodhpur, there was the Maharaja of Travancore. So it, it transcended the Hindu-Muslim uh, divide. You had the Nizam of Hyderabad and the Nizam of and the Nizam of Bhopal, uh, and also the Maharaja of Travancore and the Maharaja of Jodhpur, and a lot of small, smaller other uh, Maharajas. So you know th- that was, I think, Menon's important role that uh, he played an important. And th- there, VP Menon also was very, very clear that you know there must be uh, two dominions. There must be India and there must be Pakistan. There is no place for a third player. You mentioned Kashmir earlier, and I want to circle back to that. Fast forward a few years, Menon becomes ambassador to the United Nations. He makes this famous eight-plus-hour impassioned defense of India's position on Kashmir in front of the United Nations Security Council. This earned him a spot, as you note, in the Guinness Book of World Records because of the length of his intervention. But you also note that this made him a hero back home. What was it about this speech that sort of captured the imaginations of Indians and and, and would become, I think, a central part of of his legacy going forward? It was a a grand theatrical performance. Uh, You know, the fact that um, uh, in uh, in between two parts of his speech, you know, he fainted. Uh, and uh, he was revived. Uh, and the fact that he spoke that long, uh, and he that was the first time since 1948 that India's case was made uh, with such eloquence and with such level of detail, uh, you know, and with such political, uh, you know, uh, slant, at which Krishna Menon made. And as you know, um, Milan, uh, that made him, a hero in India, and even his bitter political, who were to become his bitter political rivals later, uh, most importantly, Rajagopalachari, uh, you know, made a public appeal that he should win. He was contesting the Bombay elections then, the 1957 election, uh, and uh, there was a public appeal made that in the national interest, uh, Krishna Menon should win. Uh, although that five years later, the same Rajaji would say, in the national interest, Krishna Menon should go. Should uh, lose. <laughs> in the context of, of the Chinese. But, you know, uh, uh, Milan, uh, more than Kashmir, I want to say one word on China. Please. Because, you know, that's, you know, very, very, very topical, very, very relevant. Correct. You know, Krishna Menon, um, and there is a lot of uh, evidence that I've brought out, uh, which have been, which has now become available, including the transcript of his conversations with Chauhan Lai in April of 1960. Krishna Menon was one politician, the only man who was arguing for a negotiated settlement. Now, what the contours of this negotiated settlement were was not very clear. At some places, it was called a swap deal. Uh, you know that you know we uh, we swap. Uh, you know, that we allow the Chinese uh, suzerainty in areas uh, which today, you know, are contested, namely Ladakh, whereas the Chinese um, acknowledged uh, India's case in the eastern sector. Uh, Broadly, that's what the swap deal meant. There was uh, sometimes the word lease 
uh, was used uh, some sometimes the word suzerainty was used but whatever it was it was a negotiated settlement that krishnamenon was talking about and advocating from 1958 onwards but unfortunately the in, the nehru's cabinet was very badly divided on this uh, only krishnamenon and uh, some other people belonging to the left uh, were arguing were supporting a negotiated settlement and all of nehru's uh, big guns in the cabinet the home minister govind vallabhpant the finance minister moraji desai and of course the vice president dr radhakrishnan uh, were all against it and nehru from 58 onwards nehru is the autumn of the patriarch you know it's the nehru is in a period of his political decline after 1958 is a slow decline and he's not the same nehru uh, you know who could say no guys uh, i want a negotiated settlement parliament was against a negotiated settlement the socialists were against a negotiated settlement uh, and a young mp uh, you know a 37 year old mp who had just been elected from up was the most eloquent voice against any negotiated settlement uh, on the chinese border of course that mp in 2003 goes to beijing as prime minister uh, and signs an agreement with his counterpart saying that we must have a negotiated settlement and they appoint special representatives i'm of course talking of atal bihari vajpayee uh, parliament was against a negotiated settlement the indian media was against a negotiated settlement nehru's cabinet uh, was against a negotiated settlement nehru was was ambivalent you know he never came out strongly in favor of of uh, of of menon uh, and that remember chavan like comes to india he comes to india in 55 he comes to india in 56 he comes to india in 57 and he, then he comes to india in 1960 uh, and he is in india for 6 days uh, in 1960 in april of 1960 and that's the last opportunity for a negotiated settlement uh, in july of 1962 krishnamenon talks to cheney in geneva uh and there again there's talk of a negotiated settlement but by then it's too late a few years later menen would end up of course famously resigning his position as defense minister over china's 1962 invasion of india you document the ways in which uh he had poisoned i guess you could say relations between the civilian establishment and the three military service chiefs uh in retrospect and with the benefit of hindsight do you think sort of menen was a convenient fall guy or do you think one can kind of draw a direct sort of causal linkage from menen's behavior to the debacle india suffered at the hands of the chinese in the 62 war uh two things uh, milan he was a fall guy if he didn't go nehru would have had to resign uh, the congress party Uh, uh the mps of the congress party said either you go if menen doesn't go you go they demanded menen's resignation uh and uh, so menen resigns uh, you know on the 7th of november finally nehru is very reluctant to accept the resignation uh, he is holding on to the resignation letter from the 28th of october 1962 to the 7th of november 1962 uh but on a in a meeting of congress members of parliament uh, many congress mp say that look uh, you know 
you got to fire him. If you don't fire him, you will have to go. Uh, and so I think uh, he became, uh, to that extent, he became a fall guy, right? Uh, but at the same time, it's very clear that the Americans uh, were had read the riot act to the Indians and said, as long as Menon is defense minister, uh, no military supply uh, will come from America. Now, that meant no military supply from Canada. That meant no military supply from Britain. Uh, and this is very clear. Kennedy uh, passes this message on to B.K. Nehru, who was our ambassador. Uh, and Galbraith passes this message on, passes this message on to Nehru uh, in Delhi. So in a way, Nehru was boxed in. Uh, he knew that, um, you know, he needed the military supplies. Uh, there was a pause, as you know, the Chinese first attack on the 10th, on the 20th of October, 1962. Uh, this goes on till the 28th of October. There's a pause. And then again, it starts on the 14th or 15th of November, 1962. And it goes on for another uh, eight, nine days. So in that interregnum, the negotiations were taking place uh, for arms supply. Uh, and it's very clear that uh, the price for the arms supply uh, was uh, the exit of, of Menon. So Nehru had to get rid of him. There's no question about it. He had to get rid of him to deal with domestic political opinion. He had to get rid of him to uh, satisfy the Americans. Uh, and this was the price that he had to pay for getting uh, military supplies immediately. So, you know, whether that means that he was a fall guy, yeah, I mean, he was a bit of a fall guy. But he had vitiated uh, the atmosphere. Uh, you know, he had played favorites. Uh, the appointment of General Call, who had absolutely no field experience and who was more of a military administrator rather than a field commander, uh, led to very severe losses for India. Uh, in Nefa, which is today's Arunachal Pradesh, uh, so there was there were some disastrous decisions that he had taken, but I think the more important reason why he had to go was the two factors that I uh, mentioned, which is that Nehru had to appease the Congress Party, uh, and Nehru had to appease the Americans. Uh, this was the price that India had to Menon's departure uh, had. You know, Nehru's, Nehru's position was saved and strengthened domestically, and American military supply and British military supply and Canadian military supply uh, was facilitated once Menon was out of the scene. So, Jay Ram, I, I want to sort of end this conversation by asking you to kind of reflect on the bigger picture. You know, there's a new generation of Indians uh, who are young who may not know the name Krishna Menon, right? They're familiar with Nehru, with Gandhi, with Mountbatten. What is it that you hope that they take away from this book as they try to position Menon in the sort of pantheon, right? As you think about the kind of sweep of the 20th century. Um, what is it that you think his legacy should be um, and that is deserving of, of, of a further study and further inquiry? Well, um, you know, uh, I think one of his great contributions to India, which 
is still very relevant and which is still being talked about is his whole emphasis on uh, you know building a domestic production defense production capability he was the man who favored uh, mig production in india over british and american aircraft because the russians were willing the soviets were willing to india to manufacture those aircraft in india this is atmanirbhar bharat of narendra modi you know he was an early advocate and practitioner he didn't call it atmanirbhar he called it self reliance you know but atmanirbhar means self reliance so uh, and this whole emphasis on defense research he was the one who got the defense research and development organization going uh so that's one part of his legacy which i think continues to uh, continues to be uh, very very important uh, i think uh, uh, the fact that he uh, was a voice always looking for an independent voice um, you know whether he never i mean he used the word non alignment uh, but uh, what he meant by non alignment basically was that you know Uh, india should do a cold calculus of its interests uh, and it should emerge as an independent voice and i think that's a legacy that you know is still very much uh, you know very much important um, his um, uh, he was he was a democratic socialist as i mentioned a great believer in democracy uh, he would have opposed the emergency undoubtedly uh, but um, i'm not so sure that he would have embraced uh, liberalization uh, i think he was as i said a democratic socialist uh, they they were two sides of the same coin now one could argue uh, that the socialist legacy has lost its luster but the, the issues surrounding the democratic the legacy over democracy uh, is still very very important uh, and i think milan um, frankly the manner in which he conducted himself after he exited uh, enhanced his uh, stature in indian public life he left with dignity he left with a sense of quietude and demonstrated remarkable loyalty uh, to a man who you could argue had sacrificed him uh, you know uh, at a crucial time but yet there was no bitterness and i think that's an important lesson for everybody in public life he wrote no memoir uh, there was no there was no uh, you know there was attempt, no tell all book <laughs> no kiss and tell all book there was no attempt to justify himself uh, so you know the manner in which he conducted himself uh, after you know uh, we judge public personalities by what they do when they are in power i believe it's important to judge public personalities by how they conduct themselves when they're out of power and whether it was pn haksa you know who was uh, indira gandhi's alter ego for 5 years before he was you know shunted aside or whether it was krishna menon you know who was nehru's soulmate for 25 years before he too was uh, you know sort of uh, kept aside Uh, both these gentlemen showed remarkable dignity when they were out of office and i think that's equally an important yardstick for judging public personalities uh, other than what they achieve when they are in power 
My guest on the show today is J. Ram Ramesh. His new book is called A Checkered Brilliance, The Many Lives of V.K. Krishna Menon. The book was recently named the co-winner of the 2020 Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay New India Foundation Book Prize. Uh, it is a fabulous read. Uh, it is it gives fodder for many more books, I think, uh, J. Ram, on, on, on this period, on Menon, on the two Menons, perhaps. Uh, thank you for taking the time and congratulations uh, on the achievement. Thank you, Milan. Thank you. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Granthamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Maya Krishna Rogers is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.